0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Insights with Experts. Joining us here today, we are very, very fortunate to have Sarah Ichioka. Now, Sarah, in addition to being the founder of De- 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 Desire Lines, she has spent um, you know, many years in her life immersed into the fields of urban planning, architecture, environmentalism, and so on. And I think I'm not going to spoil too much into some of the experiences she, she's had in the past. I think that's really something we can explore here. Um, so Sarah, just to start off with how is everything, how is everything in Singapore? And uh, yeah.
1: Oh, thanks so much for asking. Um, we're in a, in a pretty good place here right now, um, relative to the global pandemic. Obviously everyone, I've got my mask just off screen, but um, we're pretty lucky in that we have, most businesses have opened up, schools are back open, um, or just all missing friends and families, family around the globe, but otherwise feeling really lucky to be here.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, and yeah, so, so I said I didn't want to spoil too much about some of the experiences you've had and so on, because I think that's what the first question that we, we, we will actually ask you is. And essentially, what we just want to start off this interview with is just an overview of your journey. I mean, what made you want to go into urban planning, into architecture, into doing all these things? I mean. Was this a field that you've always had your eyes on, or did you, I guess, fall into it at a certain point in time?
1: Well, I think one of our characteristics as human beings is we always look for story, and we always look for straight lines where maybe they didn't exist, but if I were to try to draw a narrative straight line, um, I'd say I've always been interested in cities, um, or at least, since my strongest memory of, of a sparking interest in urbanism was in grade six when my wonderful geography teacher, Mrs. James, um, entered our whole class into something that's called the Future Cities Project. And I think for all of us, it was a huge revelation. It's a, little, it's a long time ago now, but it was a huge revelation to think that there was actually a profession of people who that was That was their passion, that was their purpose, was designing better cities, and I, my friend and I won second place, so we didn't quite dominate, but it was, I think it it gave an appetite for that field, but at the same time, I've also always been really interested in the story of people and the story of places and what came before, our roots, you know, you use the word journey, our kind of collective journeys. So I ended up studying, or studying reading history as an undergraduate, and I pursued that 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 later passion. Um, But I did find myself my third year of university doing a study abroad program in France, and I completely fell in love with Europe at the same time that I completely fell in love with architecture. Um, I think partly due to just the inspiration of a number of the instructors on that program at the University of Paris. and but by third year, you guys will probably know this, it's a little bit too late to switch majors, right? So I had to charge forward finishing and um, finishing my degree in history, but take try, desperately trying to take a lot of architecture courses um, and then, staying on an extra summer term so I could get calculus and physics under my belt, which you need to apply to architecture, stateside at least. Um, and then, but realized I, I really didn't have a strong enough portfolio to apply to architecture school compared to a lot of my peers who had done their BA um, in the subject. So short version is um, I got a research my first job was totally amazing at uh, this amazing immersive experience working as a fellow in New York City um, getting to see the transition of governments between administrations um, getting to see the mentorship of some really really amazing uh, women working at senior levels in New York City government but then I thought, okay, I'll just apply for something quick. Like what, what can I do quickly to get my portfolio together? I need drawings. I need models. So I, I figured out what's the shortest masters were not stateside, which is where I'd grown up and where I was studying, but were in the UK. So I found, I think it was a thank you Google moment. I found a master's program at the Linden School of Economics, which is not the first place you think of when you think of design, um, but they actually seemed like a really nice bridge from my humanities background uh, across design because it was a joint, it was fairly new, a new program uh, that combined a design studio with social science research. So it was a master's of City design and social science. So here I go, pack my bags, New York, land in London. Um, all ready to spend 12 months putting together a great portfolio to Life Architecture School. But Life has other plans because I'm actually one of the youngest people in my course. A lot of folks on my course are kind of late 20s, even through to mid 30s. And the course directors had specifically curated the incoming cohort to be half people like me who didn't have an architecture background and half trained architects. But it turns out the kind of architects who take a master's course to learn about social science research are the kind of architects who don't want to be architects anymore. So I have a really biased sample size of classmates who are older, really smart, much more worldwise than I am, who all take every opportunity to tell me, don't be an architect. <laughs> don't be an architect, you wanna get out of architecture because they're all trying to escape architecture. And um, So that's the sort of push Push away from architecture, and then at the same time, the pull towards urbanism came through a number of amazing instructors that I had, um, who all were more actively involved on the policy-making side, the public um, public interface side of architecture and design, at the urban scale side of design. And through that, it was almost like a year that saved me from for perhaps misguided years of expensive higher education. I also realized in the course, I'll, I'll wrap up this soon, but I also realized sitting alongside trained designers that I think I have a good eye for design. I have a good intuition about design, but there are so many other people who are so much more gifted at it if you give them a pencil or if you give them a mouse on AutoCAD. And I think one of the huge lessons for a happy life is being able to understand what you're good at and what you should get out of other people's way when they're really good at it. And I think the pro- that experience on that program and then subsequently staying on as a research assistant um, for the program and some affiliated consultancy was that I feel most comfortable and confident at the about helping to birth good design into the world, and um, and helping to communicate it to a broader public, and then helping clients, whether they're public or private sector, to commission the best possible design they can. Uh, so that that's kind of the journey up through my master's level and then i mean there are lots of ins and outs of various jobs but i'd love to hear more questions from you guys
0: yeah so sarah i mean lots lots of the people that currently will be looking at this in the future this uh, piece of content which we're making here now they're from places all over the world um you know, us canada uk singapore australia xyz In the majority of them of which, uh, from which we've seen, probably won't uh, end up living in the current country that they're currently living in now in the future, probably won't go, they'll probably find themselves working all over the world, different kinds of cultures, different kinds of environments and so on. So with that, I wanted to ask you, as someone who you know has done work in the UK, in the US and Singapore and so on, how have you found, uh, found the changes in mindsets, the approaches, towards architecture urban planning and so on how have you found that these have i guess compared and contrasted in these different areas of the world
1: Hmm. well first of all i'd say just for your audience i think that's that's really exciting and it gives me a lot of hope for the future because we're in this moment right where i think there's been a real slide back towards nationalism and a kind of worrying way and i think the world more than ever needs people who either on a professional or personal level are able to be bridges between cultures you know i always have the image of we need lots of people rowing boats between the islands and ferrying message back and forth between them rather than building walls around the islands um i say this particularly with the uk my the uk in mind at the moment um the us as well uh so first of all, I think just that I, I get tremendous hope um, from hearing you say that about your audiences. Um, and I think in a way I should also use that as a caveat because I have had the great opportunity to work in a localized setting. I mean, in, certainly in city government in New York or um, doing advisory work in former like, you know, former mining towns in Yorkshire early on in my career or more recently here when I moved to Singapore working for the National Parks Board as a fellow um, looking at some of their community agriculture programs. But I would say that generally my frame of reference tends to be largely professionals like me who are really interested in creating connections between national cultures and also be- across disciplinary ba- boundaries. Because like, I think that's another thing, right? We need as many people as possible who aren't looking to defend their particular turf but are actually looking to build connections across disciplines. So I think I'm slightly biased um, in terms of saying, it's not that different, because of course, you know, every, every context has its own peculiarities. Um, I think if I had to, if I had to, if I had to draw some boundaries, I'd say, I found it really interesting here. And in Singapore, and also you know, talking to colleagues in uh, South Korea and talking to colleagues in Japan and China, um, that there is a resurgent interest here in architectural heritage, uh, and in particular, looking at kind of post-war architectural heritage. Um, so, for somewhere like Singapore, not just valorizing its colonial architectural heritage. Whereas I always felt um, in the UK in particular that there was this sort of unhealthy obsession with the past um, amongst architects and planners and clients of architecture um, and, you know, borough councils in particular who were making the guidelines and that the heritage lobby sometimes had too strong a hand um, in a way that maybe held some places back um, and perhaps made a lot of designers think just about the facade of the building rather than the actual like three-dimensional uses of buildings you'd see a lot of preservation work that was just yeah you just i'm sure you've seen it but just keeping up the facade of a building but completely changing the back which to me is not preservation so on the one hand you're not really achieving preservation in a deep cultural sense and on the other hand you're holding back innovation um, in architecture whereas here I've kind of, you know, found myself further along the other end of the spectrum being like, no, don't, you know, like, don't, don't knock that down. It's amazing, you know, it's amazing. And um, so from moving from a, oh, come on, bring in the bulldozers to now more of a like, no, let's wait, let's see, let's see if we can use that adaptively. Um, so I think that, that that's perhaps one difference I see. Um, there's obviously also in that mix, an element of the degree to which, public participation is valued um, in the processes that connect with architecture and design and urban design, right? Um, And again, there's an interesting spectrum, right, where you can see um, cases where, like in my original hometown of Berkeley, California, nothing new of interest gets built because citizens who show up to the planning committee can essentially just kill anything um, by a death of a thousand cuts over endless planning meetings in a way that I think's been really unhealthy for that city. Um, But then on the other end of the spectrum, there are certain places where consultations, not such a big thing in in that way. Um, Perhaps some projects get pushed through that shouldn't have done, Um, I'm really interested in examples like Taiwan, which I think has a really, really robust um, citizen participation program, I think in a way that's really proactive where it gets people involved, as I understand it, it gets people involved at the briefing stage of a project. I think so often the mistake of consultation is that projects go in front of citizens after they've already been designed. And then the level of engagement Becomes quite surface. It's all about what it looks like, as opposed to what it does. Um, Whereas citizens are usually the best experts in like what their what their neighborhood needs, but not necessarily um, in kind of choosing aesthetics by committee. Um, So. Yeah, I mean, at another level, you could, as Dinesh knows, right, obviously, every different country has its own regulations, its own qualifications, but I think you're probably more interested in discussing things on a cultural level. So those those are the two things I'd say, preservation and participation, two kind of spectrums of difference that I see.
0: Oh, wow. And I think, you know, I think, yeah, one thing we can establish that even from that first answer that you gave is, you know, you've been in a, variety of places probably worked with a variety of people you probably you know you could probably look at things on a multiple level of you know organizations from nation states to individual corporations and so on so with all of this potential experience I then wanted to ask you do you have one project you know one experience one specific you know maybe person you worked with or so on uh, that really stands out above everything else and if mm. so why mm.
1: So as you know, I asked for a cheat sheet of questions in advance and this was the one that really stumped me actually. You'd think it'd be quite easy Um, or or maybe I'm in a really privileged position that I've just had so many enjoyable stimulating experiences in work um, that it's hard to pick. But actually flipping the question a little bit, I am... I actually thought that looking back on things, it hasn't necessarily been the projects that I've enjoyed or that have been my favorite, that have been the ones that have been most formative for me um, and that have really shaped and strengthened me. Um, And I think that that's really, you know, now I'm really just mid-career now, but I remember being early career and having other mid-career or late career people just saying like, be patient, it'll come. Um, Almost a non-patronizing version of like, you'll understand when you're older. Um, And I think that I can see now where they were coming from, that everything takes time and Every professional experience, no matter how painful, has the potential to be a learning opportunity if you think about it that way. Um, so, for example, I mentioned first, you know, my first job, I was so lucky. I had all of these amazing mentors, all of these really strong um, people who are interested in my growth and really passionate about their work, absolutely dedicated to making New York City a better place, just like the best kind of public servants, right? Um, and they, they happened to, to all be women as well. Um, and then subsequently, I can think of an earlier role that I had and then a quite recent experience that I had um, where all of the, everything on paper Seemed fantastic. Like everything on paper um, in this, both of these cases are two large-scale exhibitions, let's say large-scale international exhibitions. Um, all of the content of the exhibition to me was completely aligned on values. But then when it came to the way that the projects were administered, there was a complete disconnect. Um, And I think that this is something that we as a society, um, but also we as professionals in particular really need to learn from and work on um, in terms of making sure that the way that we work interpersonally is aligned with our values and it's not, we're not just thinking about outputs as being value aligned, but processes and systems and structures. Of being value aligned so I, I don't want to say too much negative about those two experiences but certainly for me as I structure my own business and you know think about employing and and helping hopefully <laughs> helping um, facilitate the growth of younger colleagues professional progression I do try to hold those two experiences in my mind Um, that one cannot get too caught up just in the content of what you're working on and um, uh, but one also has to really, really focus on getting the interpersonal human dynamics, right? Because that's the only where we're going to move forward as a society, I think.
0: So, if I'm not wrong, are you so are we like talking about here trying to get a value that's spoken about perhaps like in an a- a- exhibition or something like that? And we and what we're really looking at is trying to turn it into an actual into the action that you can see when you interact with other people, when something is taken from, I guess, theory, to like ground level work? Is, like, is that what we are talking about? Absolutely, H- totally
1: happy to clarify, right? Because I realize I'm being quite coy. I'm, I'm describing a situation I know in depth in my head, but I don't want to throw anyone under a bus. But basically it's, say, if the content of the project professes to be one thing, mm. um, which is in this case, very, very socially progressive, but the manner in which that content is meant to be delivered is incredibly regressive, hierarchical, etc. It's very, very hard to create. Nothing's pure, right? But it's very, very hard to feel when you're part of that team to feel satisfied and fulfilled and motivated. Um, and I think that I I understand that that's true across a lot of industries, right? Where we're all trying to work for something that when it reaches the rest of the world it looks perfect and wonderful um but the sausage making process behind that um because it involves human biology human chemistry you know decades of generations of social conditioning etc you know that I think when I was younger, I might have said, hearing myself, I would have thought, that's so touchy-feely, like that's so unrealistic. But actually, I think that we're not going to get, we're not going to get where we need to get on all of the things that, um, that as you'll, you'll know, need rapid transformation unless we do the work on ourselves and we do the work on our relationships with others. And for those of us who are full-time professionals, you know, we have relationships with our family and friends, but if you think about time spent throughout the day that, you know, the majority of our interactions are with our colleagues. So we really need to do the work on those relationships too. And this goes for people, I think at all, you know, at all stages of progression, but obviously there's more, and um, people in power have the greatest responsibility um, for taking charge of that. And making making others comfortable making others included helping others to make their best contributions etc
0: yeah so why i really like that answer is because it actually leads in very nicely into the final question i'd like to ask you and really what that revolves around is really taking i guess what we talk about and translating it into action i think one thing i've mm-hmm. seen lots of in university and schools are specifically students talking about environmentalism, how, you know, what's going to happen in the future, the fact that we only have nine, eight months left apparently until we can't reverse what's happening, and all this stuff needs to be spoken about 100%. Uh But I think Uh one thing that is really lacking with that is the actual action that we're going to see. Mm. I think what we're seeing now is a lack of actual steps, processes, tools that students can have, that young people can have to actually make that change. So Mm -hmm. this leads on to the last question I'd like to ask you, which is really all about how are we going to move into a future where, you know, we can incorporate environmentalism, sustainable planning into architecture and so on. And really, I think one more thing I want to add on to this is, you know, in, I think one of the last interviews that we had with Dr. Hossein Rezai, he talks about- amazing.
1: Hossein is fantastic. He's one of my favorite people.
0: Yeah, and you talked about fusion engineering, which is oh. essentially, we're demystifying the trade-off between the cost of a project and the overall quality at the end of the day. So mm. with that, I wanted to ask: Do you think we can take that model and translate it not just with cost and the, you know, what it looks like, but the cost and the environmentalism of mm. the actual piece of work, of the actual piece of architecture at the end of the mm. day? Mm. Yeah, before I answer,
1: yeah. Before I answer that, oh, I'm so happy thinking about Hussein Razai. He's just such a force for good. Um, I just wanted to respond to the beginning of your, your question or the statement at the beginning of your question, which is I have been, um, as many others of my generation and generations older, I've been absolutely blown away by the effectiveness, the organized effectiveness of the younger generations in putting these topics in the public domain, making sure that they are never far from the headlines, um, you know, forcing people like you know, the great and the good at Davos. Uh, the great and the good at the UN to grapple with these um, these very real topics. But what we need to see now, as you've very rightly pointed out, is given that all of these younger people have essentially they, they've, through their fearlessness and their clarity of vision, have opened this space um, for those who are in power to act, I want to see. <laughs> I think, who was it? One of, one of the climate activists saying like, I don't want your hope, I want your action. Um, I think we need to move past the phase of getting the like prickly tingles of feeling inspired by, by the youth and then actually delivering on their demands. Um, so part of that will go back to the question around participation, right? Who's involved in making decisions? Who is, um, who is valued? That, you know, there are several lawsuits currently underway in terms of, you know, looking at the rights of future generations. Are these compromised by current actions that that time factor as Roman Krisnarch and many others um, wh- what he calls kind of long time activists um, Argue that our systems need to adapt to take rising generations future generations into account on kind of legal terms um, so I see some inspiration in that front. Um, in terms of the your, more to the heart of your question, um, as I understand it, I think first of all, we need to move away from a, we need to relook at our metrics, essentially. Because <laughs> I think right now, when we talk about costs, as Kate Rayworth and so many other, you know, visionary economists whose work I'm so excited to see is now becoming fairly mainstream. They show that so many of our measures of performance, whether it's, you know, like, you know, sh- stocks returns to shareholders or GDP, completely excludes so many really important things like citizen health, <laughs> the number, you know, like one of my favorites is GDP includes the number of guns sold, you know, is that a measure if if you sell more guns and your GDP rises because of that does that mean that your society is better off no um so I think when we're evaluating costs we need to look at costs on a different scale you know scale across time and we also need to look um inside and around the metrics right so I think you'd, you'd asked in specific about how we balance uh, the environment and our growing population and how professionals um, involved in urban planning or policy should address that. Is it a trade-off? And I think that, I was really glad you raised the issue of, of population. Um, I think it's a great example of how everything's interconnected. I think we definitely do need to work in a coordinated way to make sure that every woman in the world can have the number of children that she wants to have (laughs) because I think and and also gets the access to education that she wants to have because as soon as girls get the same access to education as boys we naturally see population replacement rates coming to a much more sustainable level right so I think that's why one of my favorite books Project Drawdown, if you haven't read it, you should definitely check out their website, it is seriously one of the b- most inspiring books I've read in the last five years. Um, they rank educating girls as number six in terms of like fully quantified climate solutions. So it's not, you know, it's up there with wind turbines and reducing food waste, etc. cetera. Um, but I think additionally, when we think about I think population can often be a red herring that people use when they don't actually want to engage with bigger questions about inequality, for example, like if you look at if you look at um, if you look at contributions to historic emissions that have gotten us to this perilous place we are right now um, it's distributed you know the the burden the burden borne by the wealthy countries is just so much higher, right? And, but it's the people in the wealthy countries who are often pointing fingers at other countries saying population's a problem. Um, These same countries are also, with some exceptions, right, Germany was really amazing a couple of years ago, Um, but, you know, they are creating laws that keep people from coming to find a better place where their daughters can get better educations and then populations might stabilize, you know? Um, So everything's connected. And also, even within the wealthy countries, if you look at the distribution of emissions and just using emissions as one proxy, right? But we can look at all, any other number of environmental and social indicators. I mean, the top 1%, are disproportionately responsible for those emissions. So again, if we we were able to have some sense of reasonable, reasonable rebalancing of global wealth and global consumption, population would become much, much less of an issue. But given the urgency of where we are right now, we need to deal with both things, right? So, we need to provide the security of, of life, the security of tenure, um, the opportunity for education, the opportunity for family planning to all women and families who, who want it. Um, and at the same time, we in the, I mean, I'm including all of us on the call, you know, those of us who are in the wealthy world and those who are perhaps amongst the wealthiest within the wealthy world, um, to take a long, hard look at how our societies are currently structured and think like should i be calling my my senator and saying actually like i don't want a tax cut please no more tax cuts you know um although that's not how we what we're socially hardwired to do uh, or not not socially hardwired but um that wouldn't be the first instinct of a lot of people so i think i think with so many of these issues it comes back to why i think I'm so excited about hearing when you think about your peer group or your audience for this, that they are people who are gonna travel between cultures. Um, I hope that may also be really involved in brokering conversations across disciplines because it's those kind of thinkers who are gonna be best equipped to grapple with these wicked problems that have so many different facets to them and hopefully able to forge um, for solutions that put the people on the ground, um, you know, that really benefit from the knowledge of people on the ground, as well as the knowledge of those who are able to bridge between the different grounds, so to speak.
0: Yeah. So that's all. I just have, um, one really quick question, actually. I know you said before how, um, you should always stick to your strengths, um, as an architect and leave, what um, leave what you're not good at to someone else who's good at it, but um, as your time um at the as the director of architecture in the UK, um, what was one of your most important um <laughs> tips you can give to an architecture student who's looking to get employed or get an internship at a um, firm somewhere?
1: Hmm. Absolutely. And just to be sure, I want just want to make sure that um that I was clear in my meaning. I absolutely it's I, I don't think that people should, you know, just stick to immediately what they're good. I think that we all one of the amazing things about being born in the time that we are is that there is an opportunity for lifelong learning. And I think that I see a real hope for the future in terms of people constantly refreshing their skills and you know, having career changes, et cetera. So um, but on that basis, on the base of the core of your question, um, I would say that I see real promise um, in an emerging number of programs that look to give early stage architects or architecture students exposure to real world challenges. Um, so for example, I was lucky enough to be um, for, for an early stages of its development, uh, one of the governors of the London School of Architecture, which its model is that uh, students are actually sponsored by architecture firms. So they get really hands-on working experience during the period of uh, completing their course. And um, I think that the 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 sponsoring firms really benefit, right? Because they get access to these bright minds while they're still learning. Um, But at the same time, I I, I would imagine that the students bring a new level of confidence maybe um, to their studios because they already have that one foot in the the, the working world. Um, There's another, sorry, my references are so UK-centric, but the two that come to mind. There's another initiative called Practice Public. which places really talented uh, built environment and urban professionals in local authorities. And I think that that's another fantastic way. I, there must be other examples internationally. If there aren't, I'd love to see Australia start one. Um, that again, there, as with London School of Architecture with Practice Public, there, there as I understand it, there are these, these mutual benefits, both the local authorities get this infusion of, fresh talent, new ideas, and, um, you know, maybe folks who under other circumstances wouldn't have just chosen to apply directly, but because there's this sponsoring, mentoring program, and um, they do go into public service. Um, and at the same time, I think for those professionals as well, it's like, for those professionals who don't want to get caught up in kind of petty abstractions, on the one hand, I think that some architectural education can really ill-prepare students for the world. (laughs) Um, And at the same time, you know, the realities of some architectural practices is that you end up getting caught up, you know, just just detailing where the light goes, right? You're not, you're not able to apply all of the much bigger systematic thinking that you might get in, you know, one of your most inspiring studios. And I think that opportunities that like Practice Public um, to connect with a client on a much bigger scale, um, where you have to contend with these, again, issues of participation, issues of degrees of preservation, et cetera, negotiating all of these larger social and cultural parameters. I think that even if you choose to go back to more traditional practice after that, I think that it, it's almost like a like a, a really intense professional gap year opportunity in terms of, of just seeing the wider world. And if you came back to practice for you know to more traditional practice after that you would always be a huge asset to your firm because you would be so fluent in not only architect ease but real world ease which is quite important and I think finally architecture again I've had some interaction with architecture in Australia but um, you'll have to contextualize this when you think about it in your own in your own mind but In my experience in some other markets, I find that my architect friends do spend a lot of time talking about how diminished their role is. And perhaps that time could be better spent just making themselves relevant. Um, That's paraphrasing a a line of advice that I got from an amazing, like a kind of godfather participatory planning called Nabil Hamdi. Uh, who, uh, amongst other things, wrote The Placemaker's Guide. He just says, like, just stop. I'm just going to have to paraphrase, but, like, just stop arguing about, you know, about whether the world accepts you or not, and just be relevant. And I think that that, for someone starting out in their career, if you could always seek out the teacher who's helping you think about how to be relevant, you know, if you're in an internship, the the associate or the partner who you think is most actively engaged in the real world. And then you'll be able to follow their example to see how you can make the most impact.
0: Okay, Thank you so much for the advice. Of
1: course, my pleasure.
0: Um, Yeah, awesome. So in terms of what you were talking about there, um, in terms of really trying to find teachers, trying to find people that are gonna help you, what would you say are some of the best sources of mentorship that, you know, specifically the students our age, um, mm. yeah.
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think you do have to actively seek. I understand that under the current circumstances when so much of our interactions are digitally mediated, that's a lot harder. Um, but I think, you know, Fortune does favor the bold, and just like having getting up the courage to, if you hear someone give a lecture or if you see an article um, that someone publishes, to just reach out to them. I mean, social media does make that a lot easier now. I think as long as you are the right combination of curious and informed, then. I feel like students to folks, students especially, but then folks up to their early, your early 20s, you have this really fortunate position where people who are mid-career or late-career are going to feel so generous towards you, right? So all you need to, in, you know, say 70% of the time at least, is all you need is to show that you are curious and you are informed. So you wouldn't approach someone and say like, Oh, I love this article. What else have you written? You know, you do a search and say, like, I was really inspired by this article, this part in particular. Um, it connects with, you know, like your interest in uh, refugee housing connects with one of the questions I had from my last term studio. Um, would you have, and then you always have to be really specific and make it as easy as possible for them to say yes. So, like, you know, is there any chance that sometime in the next two months I could set up a 20 minute zoom call with you and share this part of my portfolio and get your feedback on it? You know, it's, so it's not like, I loved your article. What else have you, have you written? Or I loved your article. Could we get coffee sometimes? It's like, you're really specific. You're well-informed you're curious and you're offering the potential that they might learn something from you too. Right? So I think that, being able to forge those connections, even if it takes you out of your comfort zone, um, it's a lot more likely to be authentic if it's driven by a particular interest that you have and and spurred by something in particular that you see the potential mentor having put out in the world. If it's an article, if it's a TED talk, it's, if it's a post they put on their Instagram, whatever. Um, and also you're always, at your best advantage if you're doing that before you really need anything from them, right? You don't, ideally, you don't want to approach someone like, I loved your TED Talk, will you give me a job? That's a lot, that makes it a lot easier for them to say no. It's like, I loved your TED Talk, and you know, at at the six minute mark, like that image you used was absolutely amazing. I'm trying to think about how I can improve my use of visuals, In my presentation like would you have sometime in the next two months would you have 20 minutes for a zoom call if i set it up for me to share what i'm working on and ask you a few questions so i think being courageous being targeted and doing it at a time before you are in a position of like needing which in any personal or professional context can always add a, a different element that's maybe not what you'd be looking for
0: Mm-hmm. so we've, we've established like you know for some time now what we can gain from being a mentee how about in terms of being a mentor like what what can you gain from just you know you know taking an hour of your time every week out to help someone less experienced than you are
1: so if I could use an analogy from um, I'm really interested as a side like a side interest in impact investing in philanthropy and studies have shown that If you spend $100 given charitably to someone else or another organization who you know needs it versus spending that $100 on yourself, like to buy a new wallet or to buy a fancy lunch, you get way more of a dopamine hit (laughs) from the charitable giving and it lasts for longer. So in a purely like utilitarian sense, it's actually like the better choice to give than to keep it for yourself. And I think you could probably use that analogy with time or knowledge as well. Like, it's actually incredibly, incredibly rewarding to share your time and to share your knowledge with someone who really actively wants it um, and can benefit from it than just like hogging it to yourself. Oh, you know, An hour of my time I can write you know maybe like 200 more words I'm happy with on an article or something or like I can review three PowerPoint decks but then an hour if I'm sharing it with someone else who would be really excited to spend that time is just so much more energizing and rewarding and I think uh, most mentors will also well all all mentors will at some point knowingly or not have been mentees so I'm sure there's an aspect of paying it forward, pain it back. And other than that, I think, you know, we're all expected to, you know, in, in the wealthy world at least, we're, we're all expected to be living for a longer period of time, for working for a longer period of time. So I think that it's, um, it's really important for everyone to not become too fixated on thinking of ourselves as being a certain age or a certain career uh, you know, a certain seniority, because like, hey, if I decide I want to retrain as a boat maker when I'm 50, I will become an immediate novice, right? And I will need mentors, and I will benefit from mentors. Um, and all of us need to be able to cultivate that learner, that learner mindset. And I think that perhaps mentorship, if done right, if it's not done a, if it's done in a properly like give and take way um, can really help the older person as well. They can learn so much um, about, you know, through the younger person's perspective, or actually like, let's not even talk. I mean, I think your cohort does tend to be a younger cohort, right? But I think I'd love to see society evolve. So we don't even, we don't always think about it as being constrained by the mentor being the older one, the mentee being the younger one, right? Like if I wanted to learn anything about coding, it's highly likely that I would, my mentor would probably be numerically younger than me, right? Um, So I think the more that we can build a culture that creates opportunities for us to share with each other and learn from each other, like that would help me feel much more optimistic about our trajectory.
0: Yeah, I was actually recently creating a piece of content with the founder of gen z talks and what okay. they do is they interview you know a series of like, students around my age that's like mm-hmm. 18 or uh, 25 and they just really do the exact opposite of what we do so as opposed of getting interviews from the experienced, they get insights from younger people mm-hmm. and so what he talked about there the, the founder um, is really all about mutual mentoring as mm-hmm. opposed to just one party learning from the other party there are some things which young people possess, which old people arguably don't. Certain mm. skills here and there, which you know we're now learning. Like you know, if you we have like these six-year-old kids learning apps like TikTok, like yeah. you know, in their day and they're doing these amazing things, making yeah. videos, putting animations together, editing yeah. videos, all these amazing things. They're they're learning at such young ages, and it just makes you think what they can do in that time. Mm. And if you combine that young creativity. The enthusiasm that they have with the experience of the slightly older people. I mean, the result from that is you're going to put two aspects into one, which mm-hmm. can then really make things that we actually haven't seen yet. So, yeah. Absolutely.
1: I love that idea. So, yeah, that's just an extension, really, of saying, like, let's look at how we bridge between cultures, how we bridge between disciplines, like, definitely how we bridge between generations. Um, and hopefully, in a way that, yeah. And of equalizes, it,
0: yeah, it equalizes the exchange. Mm-hmm. So Sarah, um, to end off every single interview, what we do is we ask our expert one question and it's the exact same question we literally ask everyone. And essentially what that question is, is if you could just leave the youth with one piece of advice, what would that one piece of advice actually be?
1: So it's always easier to give advice than to take it yourself. So I wanted to share something that I am, a piece of advice from two thinkers I really admire. Essentially, it's the same sentiment, but it's one that I'm trying to incorporate in my own practice, because I've realized recently that perfectionism is definitely something I need to let go of in order to move forward with things. So this is how it's phrased by two different thinkers. Um, So one, uh, Rebecca Solnit says, perfection is a stick with which to beat the possible. Which is kind of paraphrasing Voltaire saying, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And then Henry James wrote, and this is the one I'm trying trying to make my mantra is, excellence does not require perfection.
0: Thanks for listening in. This podcast has been brought to you by Desair, a platform designed to bridge the gap between the youth and professionals. You can read more
1: about us at desair.org, and you can also check out the section titled Insights with Experts, where you can submit your questions that you might have for future experts and industries that you would like to learn more about. And you can also refer in any experts that you might know yourself.